Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The Trump administration aims to have a replacement for retiring Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy confirmed in time to join the court for its new term in October. This according to the White House today. Joining us now to talk about this, Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, also a former clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice David Souter. Uh, Noah, thank you so much for being with us. I just want to start with your view of kind of how we're going to proceed going forward, who you think the front runner will be uh, for this uh, Supreme Court vacancy? Well, the Trump administration has publicized a list of potential nominees, and rumors have that list cut down to further to five people. And until now, the administration has been as good as its word in nominating people from its public lists. So based on prior experience, it's almost certain to be one of those five. What they have in common is that they're all dyed-in-the-wool conservatives. Um, In age, they range from uh, middle 40s to late 50s. And um, most, though not all, have some experience on the federal appeals court. So, you know, dyed-in-the-wool conservative can take different forms when you're talking about constitutional law, uh, whether they're originalist, whether they're more sort of ideological. What's your impression of uh, these particular candidates? I think nearly all of these, perhaps 100% of them, would, if asked, say that their constitutional philosophy is broadly originalist. I don't think any would say that they had some other view, and none would say that they supported the idea of a living constitution. Noah Feldman, based on what you know in terms of the court's current voting pattern and uh, based on what you've just described in terms of the kind of person, uh, their their legal perspective that will join uh, the court, what kinds of rulings do you expect when the court uh, reconvenes in October? Well, the biggest issue which will be watched most closely and debated most intensely over the next few months is certainly abortion rights. Several states um, have either passed or are on the verge of passing laws that are extremely restrictive of abortion rights, much beyond the current legal standard. And those are the ones that will be focused on. Um, And for that reason... I think one of the crucial issues over the next few months in the public debate about this is whether several of the more moderate Republicans in the Senate, including Senators Collins and Murkowski, both of whom are formally pro-choice rather than pro-life, would cast their votes to confirm a nominee who would be very likely to vote to overrule Roe v. Wade. And so, you know, that is very much at issue here. It could well be that this justice would provide the decisive fifth vote. We don't know absolutely for sure because we don't know how Chief Justice Roberts would vote, but we know that Justice Kennedy, who's just retired, cast a decisive vote to preserve Roe v. Wade back in 1992, and we know that whoever is likely to be confirmed, assuming a confirmation, is probably someone who will think that that case should be overruled. 
Well, Noah, is it likely that whoever is the nominee will answer a direct question on this topic? I'd say it's totally unlikely, close to zero. I mean, in theory, of course, you know, with a guarantee that all Republicans would vote to confirm, the person could actually go up there and do what almost no nominee in modern history has done, namely be honest and say, yes, I would vote on that, and this is how I would vote. But there's a strong precedent now for nominees saying, I can't answer that because that issue may come before the court, and I don't want to disqualify myself in the future, and so therefore I decline to answer. And so my guess is that you, not just a guess, that my overwhelming prediction is we won't hear any direct answers to that question. So, Noah, the the shift here, Anthony Kennedy's retirement has been portrayed uh, pretty dramatically on both sides, uh, both as a political boon to the GOP and as a sort of, uh, you know, catastrophe on the left. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, it's definitely uh, pretty broadly people agree this is the biggest uh, change or shift potentially in American jurisprudence since arguably since Roe versus Wade. Would you agree, first of all, with that statement? And, and how do you think it's going to change uh, the nature of Supreme Court rulings going forward? Yes, it's going to mean a very significant and potentially vast shift. We should keep in mind that part of that is because the Republican Senate blocked Barack Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, who would have replaced Justice Scalia. If, he had, if Garland had gone through and then Kennedy had retired, we would be back in a position of balance between the sides. But because the Senate blocked Garland, and as a result, uh, Donald Trump was able to nominate and confirm Neil Gorsuch, that makes this the decisive, decisive vote. And the thing is, Justice Kennedy was a conservative in many ways, but on a handful of hot-button issues, including gay rights uh, and abortion and Guantanamo, he actually voted with the liberals. And for that reason, his retirement opens the possibility of a durable conservative majority for a whole generation. And that is potentially a sea change in the U.S. Constitution as interpreted. Are there any precedents that are being broken or created because of the unusual circumstance of President Donald Trump and the Mueller investigation simultaneous to this potential appointment? Well, we don't know yet. Um, certainly, Donald Trump's goal and his success, in fact, has been in breaking all the unwritten rules. And even when he's pressed the boundaries of the written rules, he's more or less gotten away with it. The, the travel ban was struck down by the lower courts in its first two forms, but as you know, in its final version 3.0, it was upheld by, by the Supreme Court just, uh, just earlier this week. It's hard to remember that it was so recently, but it was just earlier this week before Justice Kennedy's retirement was announced. So yeah, there's a kind of pressure on the boundaries of constitutional law right now, and we can expect that pressure to continue because Donald Trump is obviously inclined to try to push the envelope. And a court dominated by conservatives and with two of his nominees on it would probably be much more likely to uphold those actions than would another court. So, uh, Noah, you know, there has been a lot of focus on abortion rights at Roe versus Wade and possibly that getting overturned. But aside from sort of the hot button issues, is there another place that people should be focusing where we could see a major shift uh, that would have an impact on people's life in terms of how the uh, Constitution is interpreted? Yes. Um, one question is whether uh, the right to gay marriage, which the court established, would be preserved or overturned. We don't know the answer to that. Um, another area of importance is environmental law, where if there were to be a Democratic president in the future and a Democratic-controlled EPA, um, aggressive pro-environmental restrictions could potentially be struck down by a court. 
Um, yet another area is the freedom of speech, where a conservative activist court could use the freedom of speech as a tool to strike down relatively progressive laws, which we actually already saw happening uh, over the last week or 10 days in several important Supreme Court opinions. So, yeah, there are, there, are a whole, there are a whole host of areas in which there could be a real difference. And I would say most broadly, again, should a Democrat get elected president and should there be a Democratic House and Senate in the future, um, major progressive legislation, again, hypothetically, if it would be passed along the lines of Obamacare, uh, would stand a good probability of being struck down by a conservative court. Thank you very much. Noah Feldman, Harvard Law Professor, Bloomberg Opinion a Columnist. Steel, aluminum, whiskey, mustard, toilet paper, washing machines, motorboats, even maple syrup. These are all subject to tariffs from Canada as it celebrates its 151st birthday on Sunday. And here to tell us about tariffs, trade wars in the United States and Canada is Clay Lowry. He is managing director of Rock Creek Global Advisors. They're based in Washington, D.C. And he is also a former assistant secretary for international affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department. And he also chaired the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, known as CFIUS. Clay Lowry, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, you know, when Prime Minister uh, Justin uh, Trudeau uh, celebrates uh, Canada's birthday, uh, he's going to be doing it under this cloud of trade wars with the United States. What effects do you think this is going to have on the long-lasting relationship between the United States and Canada? And what do you think the economic fallout's going to be? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, in terms of the uh, our relationship with Canada, it's based on, uh, one, mutual respect that we've had for a long time between our two countries. So um, I worry, obviously, that the trade war aspect that you mentioned um, could affect specific businesses, um, uh, but I'm hopeful that um, while there has been some pretty um, not so great rhetoric between our two uh, leaders of our country over the last few months, that uh, you know cooler heads will prevail and we'll be able to start coming to agreement on how we want our relationship to go forward. So I uh, have a lot of respect for the Canada. Obviously, I respect my own country, and so I think I'm hopeful that that will work out in the end. As to the specific economic issues, I think it's much more going to be a microeconomic story, which is um, a problem because, of course, um, it's going to hit specific businesses. You mentioned a bunch of different uh, industries at the lead into this story, um, and they're being hit. They're not just being hit by Canada. They're being uh, they're getting tariffs by a lot of other countries around the world, and there's a lot of businesses that export. And uh, it's not exactly surprising that the countries are hitting back when we're putting tariffs on them for yeah. fairly dubious reasons. You know, uh, Clay, I'm so glad you're with us today because you have the deep experience with some of these trade relationships that will actually give us an informed view of fairness. You know, we hear a lot about how uh, the U.S. has an unfair trading partnership with the rest of the world. Where do you see uh, the biggest inequities, and uh, are we moving closer to solving those? So um, I'm not. 
look, I think that uh, having an unfair trading relationship, I'm not sure we actually have that. Um, I know that that is the president's contention, and there's other people that believe very strongly in what he says, and uh, I give them due credit for that. But the, um, I think what we should be always striving to do is to try to better ourselves by making, you know, opening up our opening up markets, making sure we have good rules of the road so that we can figure out how do we get our products into other countries and, by the way, allow their their products to get into our country because that actually helps our consumer um, and, and it helps our exporters. So I think that what I would be doing, and I'm not, is uh, I'd be focusing on how to work with those countries in a way to actually uh, get better uh, and more positive as opposed to what we're right now doing, which is much more negative, which is we're putting tariffs on uh, a number of countries around the world. Uh, we did it on steel and aluminum. We're threatening to do it on auto imports. Um, and the one country that really has been probably most, most problematic has been China. And instead of actually trying to take a coordinated approach with a lot of our allies who have some of the same similar problems with China, we're instead hitting those same allies. Um, and I that that part of the negotiating tactics I don't get, but uh, I'm not the president and I'm not uh, his negotiators. Clay Lowry, uh, while we're having these war of uh, trade uh, words, I guess, because nothing is uh, set in stone, at least not in the moment, um, China seems to be moving just as rapidly ahead with its trade ties, let's say, with Latin America. Indeed, I believe if you go to Panama right now, at the uh, sort of promontory, right at the opening of the newly widened Panama Canal, in which uh, the first ship was a Chinese ship to go through it, uh, the Chinese have secured land to build their new embassy. Uh, Is that going to be emblematic of what happens in the future if this trade war continues? It's not exactly surprising. I mean, if if a if your country is being hit by the United States on certain uh, exports, um, why would you inst- not instead try to find new sources of uh, of of exports that yourself, um, whether export markets yourself? Um, for instance, uh, I remember talking to a Canadian company, which basically was saying, boy, these steel tariffs are really going to hit us hard because we import from the United States and we won't be able to do that anymore. Instead, what we're going to do is try to find other sources. And it turns out there are a lot of other steel producers in, in the world. Yeah. And so uh, they're now going to be, instead of uh, buying U.S. steel, which was easy because, of course, there weren't really tariffs and it's right next door. Now that there's a 25% tariff on that, they were like, well, we can pay for the shipping costs to come from other parts of the world instead. And right. so uh, what you were saying about Panama is not surprising that people are looking elsewhere than just the United States. We're still the biggest player out there, but we're not the only player. So uh, just about a, a minute left here. I'm just wondering, you advise clients on the trade backdrop. What do you tell them? Well, we're, I mean, the main thing is, look, it's been a, it's been a very bumpy ride. And I think trade clients are very concerned about um, uncertainty and the uncertainty is hurting their business. So in some respects, a lot of the tariffs have not actually gone into place yet. But the threat of tariffs has happened and that is actually already affecting their business. So now uh, with the tariffs in place, it'll affect that more directly. Um, and the only thing we can say is, 
right now it's hard to see the plan that is in place from the administration. So continue to prepare for alternatives um, uh, as the administration thinks through its plans. But basically, there is very little consistency. So because of that, you have to kind of prepare for inconsistency. Clay Lowry, Lowry, thank you so much for being with us. Clay Lowry is Managing Director of Rock Creek Global Advisors in Washington, D.C. His resume is uh, very uh, full of government experience with trade, uh, both with uh, chairing the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, known as CFIUS, as well as uh, serving as the Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department from 2005 to 2009. I want to turn our attention now to video games and bring in Felix Gillette. He's a uh, writer for Bloomberg Business Week, and he wrote a story that caught my attention. First of all, it was the cover story for yes. Bloomberg Business yes. Week, and it has to do with Nintendo. And I got to say, Felix, first of all, thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Um, uh, I did not know that the company was 130 years old. Yeah. And I really found that it was fascinating that you managed to go to the Nintendo headquarters Maybe just describe what you experienced when you went there, and then we'll talk about Super Mario and video games. Yeah, I had the opportunity to go to Kyoto and interview uh, top executives and game makers at, at Nintendo. They don't do this very often. I mean, the whole setup is basically if you're a Western reporter and you say, hey, I want to write about the company, say, oh, great, go talk to the head of Nintendo of America. So if you're in the U.S. or if you're in Europe, they'll say, oh, go to our executives in Europe. Um and they don't do too much individual press. So it was a great experience. I will say in the you know 15 years I've been a journalist, this story took longer to set up the interviews than any other story I've ever worked on. So, but but describe. Yeah, this. so I got there and uh, it was not what I expected. I mean, it's this, essentially you go to the headquarters and the R&D building, which is these two buildings a couple blocks away. They're these white minimalist cubes and they're so perfectly quiet and you know just there's no mario stuff anywhere there's no uh donkey stuff there's just nothing it's just the you know it's very um you know quiet serene environment uh from which all of these crazy this huge fountain of games has been flowing now for you know 130 years one thing that i thought was so interesting full disclosure as a mother of two boys Mm -hmm. i think of video games as sort of mindless and a place where you go and Mm -hmm. sort of lose yourself with a little sort of redeeming value i'm totally exploring my bias (laughs) now publicly um but the feeling of whimsy and mm-hmm. and creativity yeah. and and just sort of uh, rooted in history that you really captured here. Yeah, I mean, it's got Nintendo has this incredibly rich game making culture, um, and the company was there at the start of this, you know, this whole uh, art form of video game making uh, in the late 1970s, and their first, you know, very talented game maker, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto who made Donkey Kong, which was their first globally uh, huge, hugely successful game, he's still at the company. He hasn't left. And he just mentors, you know, generation after generation of these game makers that come in. And in some ways, it's very reminiscent of the entire uh, artisanal culture 
for which Kyoto is known. I mean, you can go around Kyoto and you can go visit these studios and see these classical crafts of, you know, um, bamboo making, whatever it is, that go back centuries. And it's a similar system. There's a master craftsman and there's always an apprentice learning. And it's very much this system, this tension between, you know, learning the traditional craft, but also pushing it forward. And the same thing happens in Nintendo, basically. And when you talk to the senior game makers in Nintendo, they all say they always defer the praise down to the newcomers. They say, no, you know, this wouldn't be possible. Yeah, you know, we've been part of these franchises Mario, Zelda that have been around for 30 years now, but it really wouldn't be possible if we didn't have these young game makers coming in and pushing these traditions forward with each new console. Tell us about one of these. Uh, tell us about Switch. So Switch is the the console that Nintendo came out with last year. It's been very successful. It's a mo it's a hybrid system. You can hook it up to your TV, and then you can also take it with you out, you know, on the subway or the airplane or whatever. Um, and it's been hugely successful. And Nintendo is this kind of fascinating company where it goes through these big boom and bust cycles. And before the Switch came out, you know, they'd been in one of these lulls where people were saying, ah, these guys are, you know, they're like BlackBerry, they're like Sega, they're doomed, they can't keep up with, you know, the mobile phone era, they're never going to have another hit product. And lo and behold, Switch comes out and gamers go crazy for it. Um, and it's been the biggest thing in video game industry for the past year and a half. And now, you know, Nintendo is kind of back on top. The revenue more than doubled during this past fiscal year. Um, they had this incredible lineup of very popular games. Yeah. Again, these re uh, reimagined versions of these franchises that have now been going for 30 years. I played as a kid in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, they're new versions now that kids are playing. Felix Gillette, thank you so much for being with us. It's a really terrific story, and uh, I'd love to hear more about your trip, frankly. Uh, Felix Gillette, uh, writer for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us here in our 1130 studios. We talked a lot about Amazon and its foray into the pharmaceutical business. A lot of the shares of possible competitors sold off. Today, interestingly, the sell-off is continuing, at least with respect to CVS and Express Scripts. Joining us now to talk about the consequences of Amazon uh, in just lowering drug prices is Michael Ray, pharmacist, founder, and chief executive officer of RX Savings Solutions. Michael, thank you so much uh, for being back with us. I just want to get your view uh, from from the outset, when you heard that Amazon was getting into this industry with its latest purchase, uh, did you think that this would materially lower drug prices in the near term? Well, I think that it will. And I think that the way, the angle uh, that they've decided to take into the market is uh, is going to make that a swift, more swift uh, you know, opportunity to do something in the near term, uh, buying a group like PillPack that really is is centered around convenience and logistics um, with pharmacy licenses in place allows them to make a, a big move uh, quickly. Why do you think that someone else didn't scoop up PillPack previously? Well, I know there was rumor that uh, that Walmart was was kind of in the hunt. In the hunt, um, you know why they didn't? I don't know if it came down to price or or what the what the deal structure looked like. Uh, but it's a tremendous asset for anybody that's looking to. You know, materially affect the affect the pharmacy game, 
especially as it relates to, to being, you know, home delivery and, and convenience uh, for, for seniors. Yeah, we actually, uh, Bloomberg News did report that Walmart uh, actually stole it away or got it stolen away from it, uh, the pill pack purchase, uh, when Amazon came along and outbid them. Um, I just do want to get your sense, Michael, uh, about exactly how Amazon will lower prices materially uh, given this purchase. Well, I think that, you know, the the famous Jeff Bezos quote of your margin is my opportunity uh, really rings true here. Uh, Amazon is a, a tremendous tremendously big company. Uh, they don't enter markets uh, that are small or with the intent of, of doing things in business as usual. There's also this, you know, uh, strong belief that there's a tremendous amount of excess uh, waste in the supply chain uh, when it comes to pharmacy. So, I believe that is what they will attack. Um, you know, Amazon has such a strong brand with consumers. You know, the the ability to capitalize uh, on the brand that they've already built and add drugs to that allows them to just you know service more and more people. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 do so in a way that's convenient uh, and easy. Can you just give us a sense of what that excess is in the pharmaceutical industry? Well, if you look at the supply chain, you've got, you know, your manufacturers, your wholesalers, your, your pharmacy benefit managers, and your retailers. Um, each of those, depending on the drug, uh, you know, there's, there's profit built into each of those transactions as, as the drugs move. Um, how much is enough is, is a question that's often asked. Uh, I think, you know, like I said, Amazon will come in and attack those, those high margin areas um, and do so in a way that could, you know, really affect the pharmacy landscape in a, in a short amount of time. Michael, what role do you think Alexa and Whole Foods will be playing in this? You know, uh, I don't think Whole Foods, I don't, I don't think they're looking to, to create another retail network. I think that they're trying to build on what their core strengths are, and that's logistics and moving moving products and making it easy for consumers. Um, as far as Alexa, I think, you know, voice is definitely something, you know, we've worked a lot on at our company and, and have that function in our app. It, it's something that people like to use, and, and as those technologies get better. Doctors will use them. Consumers will use them much more than they do today. I think we'll look back in five years and say Alexa or similar products uh, have <clears throat> have really taken uh, taken a, a huge uh, or really added convenience to the to the process. Michael, I'm curious what you think Amazon's next step will be in terms of its foray into the healthcare industry. Well, I can only speculate. Um, yeah, but you can speculate from an educated place knowing exactly how much information and uh, access you have once you get into the drug uh, the drug supply chain. Yeah, I mean I, w- I would I would guess that they'll start out with uh, you know some of the some of the easier components of of managing drug benefits. I think that you know cash uh, cash generics have been floated around in the market as as something that you know would be the the kind of easy first step. I think that makes sense. Um, but you know they're they're a sophisticated, very smart organization. Um, I, I think they could attack it in a variety of ways. But this retail piece, interfacing with the consumer, uh, is a good first step. Michael, if you happen to be running a pharmacy right now, what do you take away from this week's announcement, and what should you do? Give you about thirty seconds. Uh, yeah, I think there's going to be tremendous margin compression um, on profits. Uh, how quickly that happens is is to be seen, uh, but you know, I think as we've seen, CVS and Walgreens are both down 10% um, in the market, and and that I think that's indicative. And and if I was running my own, you know, kind of independent pharmacy, I'd I'd feel the same pressure that that those guys are experiencing in the public market.
Thanks very much for being with us. Michael Ray is a pharmacist. He's also the founder and the chief executive of RX Savings Solutions, talking about drug prices, pharmacies, and the effects of Amazon.com purchasing PillPack. We'll have to see what happens to uh, the brick-and-mortar pharmacies uh, as a result of this acquisition uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.